So maybe you're a crazy person like me who has over 400 Marines and you want to name them all. Or maybe you love creating new characters for D&D. Or maybe you just really like learning the meaning and origins behind some of your favorite nerdy character names from pop culture. Well then, it sounds like you need Naming Your Little Geek by Scott Root. This is an incredibly fun and easy read. It taught me not only is Ulrich the name of a war god, but also a Sith master. It also comes with one more added benefit. It's a great resource for naming your babies. Follow the link in the description below and pick up your copy of Naming Your Little Geek today. Welcome to Geeks of Grimdark, your home for everything Warhammer, be they elves or Eldar, Space Marine or Stormcast, we've got you covered. I'm Lord Torn Orc, and with me as always is... The Shield Brother, Axel Wright. How's it going today, man? It is okay. I am not feeling wonderful, but I've got a friend coming in from out of town tomorrow, so looking forward to the weekend. How are you doing? Uh, as good as one can be in the ever-darkening timeline we find ourselves. That's fair. Like, the news this week, which kind of works no matter when we release this, has made me reconsider if The Darkest Timeline is even remotely funny anymore, or it's just like, yeah, we're in hell. <laughs> Prove me wrong, future. Prove me wrong. I, I think uh, the only evidence I might use against you is that there's a meme, uh, not a meme, a quote I saw from MASH that basically indicates that we're in a place worse than hell. So, <laughs> because... Yeah. Hell is where sinners go. Innocents don't go to hell, but plenty of innocents are suffering where we are, so. Yeah, goddamn, MASH is relevant all these years later still. Great show. Anyways, enough doom and gloom, let's do something fun. Like, thank the people that like us so much that they give us money so that we can talk about MASH and Warhammer and whatever else we feel like. They are our wonderful, wonderful patrons. And they are Pam Galley, Marky, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin Bay, Brendan Agnew, John Vinnels, Kit Kenny, Donna Lucy, Nathan Willis, Patrick Anderson, Carson Mills, Scott Rubin, and Derek Takade. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing your name right. You... If I'm not, leave me a comment. Also, Seth Decker. <laughs> That's right. Seth isn't on this list. Well, he pissed me off the other day, so he gets off the list. <laughs> He's on the list I'm looking at. So <laughs> now, if you would like to become a patron and you know avoid my wrath, just head over to patreon.com forward slash geeks with shields. Twenty five cents an episode means a dollar a month means tons of extra bonus content. And as this is a geeks of grimdark, as always, we have a guest and returning for. Is this the? I think this is the fourth time. But feel free to introduce yourself. Uh, hello there, Loremaster Sotek, uh, back, and I I want to say it's the fourth time. Is it the fourth or the, the third? Fourth or the fifth? I can't because remember. It's definitely not the fifth. No, it's, yeah. it's, it's definitely the fourth, because the first time you came to talk about lizards, the second and third time were as a two-parter about the end times, and now you're here again. No, uh, we had one episode before that where we talked about books. Oh, we did? Yeah. Well, was oh, yeah, third. I think he's right. That was way back when. Okay, fifth, five then. All right. <laughs> You're a regular veteran with us now, aren't you, Sotek? Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I can say is that between last time we had you on and this time, I have gotten really into Total War, so I have at least a more of a first-hand experience with something of the fantasy setting. <laughs> oh, good. I, I hope you're enjoying the game. Uh, uh, massively, yes. I got really into Skaven, so... <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's a good place to be. Yep, yep. <laughs> Anyway, Ulrich, what is our particular topic for today? Well, 
This is one that I want to say is long debated in the community, but debated isn't the right word as much as it is shouted at opposing sides. And we're going to talk Age of Sigmar versus fantasy in what each setting does well, what each setting doesn't do so well, and kind of compare and contrast the two settings as a whole. Okay. Well, then, before we get into it, I want to say that from from my perspective, right, when I first started getting into 40K as a hobby, it was, I guess, not too long after AOS had dropped in general. And so all I remember hearing was criticism about AOS. But as more time has gone on, I've heard a lot more positive things about it, particularly in reference to, in its comparison to 40K. I believe Sotek yourself has mentioned some things when we were talking about, I think, the evolution of storylines. Uh, but... For anyone not listening, Sotek, why don't you give us a because we you you spent at least two episodes two full episodes talking about Warhammer Fantasy with us, so why don't you give us a brief rundown of your perspective of what AOS is for anyone listening? Uh, okay, yeah, so ooh, eight the best way to put Age of Sigmar into a neat little box as quickly as possible is that Age of Sigmar is essentially a very mythic fantasy like as high fantasy as you can go to the extent that it's so high fantasy that the line between fiction and science fiction is really blurred and a lot of the creatures or technology you're dealing with would feel more at home in a super futuristic setting than they do in a traditional fantasy setting and there are gods walking around and massive events happening and reality warping level spells and rituals and monsters that are so colossal that they could easily flatten cities with a single step and all sorts of just absolutely bonkers, crazy stuff. But at the same time, within that grander scheme, it has held on to its fantasy roots and that it also tells a lot of very intimate stories about small villages and individuals and personal struggles and lots of regrets. And it it's a weird universe that kind of walks this balance between trying to hang on to that familiar grimdark kind of feel that we expect from Games Workshop, while also being something unique in that it is a universe that is very distinctly hopeful and unleashing battles on a scale that don't really exist outside of it, which could be hard for some people to comprehend, especially if you come from like a 40 K background, but um, it's, it's this strange universe where there are many, many realms, but the story focuses around nine magical realms. And each of these realms is a planet. But when I say a planet, I mean, it's like a flat earth. So it's like a plane, but they're massively larger than any planet in existence, each one of them. And there are nine of them, and they're not connected physically, but they're connected by these magical gateways that could take many, many different forms that are known as realm gates that can take you from one place to another through the, the cold space of what's known as the void, which is kind of like outer space, but it's not like outer space because there are things that live out there. For instance, we're talking about a universe where the constellations are not just merely constellations. Many of the constellations are living entities. So, so they are creatures that can breathe and talk and attack. Two things real quick. I'm going to interject. Uh, obviously, if you're listening to this, it probably goes without saying that you have a basic understanding of 
Games Workshop products, Warhammer 40K and whatnot. But if for some reason you've been listening to this and you hadn't listened to our previous stuff, obviously it's a tabletop war game situation and like 40K, but instead of theoretically instead of sci-fi fantasy-ish setting, although as Sotek just put, H. Sigma particularly has a, a, a blurs those lines. And two, your description of the realms thing makes me feel like it's a lot more, for lack of a better term, and I don't mean this negatively, I just don't have a better word for it, stolen from D&D's Forgotten Realms setting. Yeah, you could you could say stolen from Forgotten Realms or Norse mythology or Magic the Gathering or <laughs> any it's, number it's of maybe, other places you can pull it from. We've shifted from Tolkien-esque to whatever we're calling new fantasy. Sure, something like that. Like... I'd, I mean, Warhammer Fantasy is a kind of its own weird beast, but when you compare it to Age of Sigmar, it's like, you look grounded by comparison. Well, okay, maybe. Here's well, what I'll, I'll say. Because again, like to try and argue that Warhammer Fantasy was very low fantasy, very, you know, basic. It's like, hold on now. You got Ratmen and... One, not just Ratmen. You have, rat, you have Ratmen who have uh, magic nukes that are yeah. only kind of magic. And so. even aside, the Lizardmen, the Tomb Kings, there's a lot of weirdness in old fantasy. Age of Sigmar just stops, I don't want to say stops being subtle, but kind of leans into the weirdness in a way. Well, honestly, I feel like from my perspective, which is a very limited one, but from what I've seen, the best way to illustrate this would be to look at how dwarves changed. Because dwarves, just based on the Total War II game and total war three that i've been playing mostly total war two that i've been playing warhammer total war two uh dwarves in the warhammer fantasy setting are, feel a lot like what you imagine dwarves are but just heightened i mean they've got <laughs> cannons that are and like flamethrowers that go like really far they have some pretty advanced tech but then the age of sigmar dwarves are like literally sky pirates so <laughs> I think generally the way I like to try and describe it to help people understand the leap between the two. And, and and this is something that I think for people that maybe aren't as familiar with Warhammer, a, a lot of people get confused when they meet a Warhammer fan and the Warhammer fan will say something along the lines of that Warhammer fantasy was low fantasy in comparison to Age of Sigmar. It sounds like a really weird opinion. But the reason they tend to say that is because the thing about Warhammer Fantasy that made it very unique um, and why I really, really love it and uh, I think a lot of people were drawn to it is that Warhammer Fantasy, while it is a very crazy fantasy universe, it has insanely deep roots in our physical world and follows a lot of the rules and the history of our world and that every single one of the cultures that exist within Warhammer Fantasy – is based on a very specific idea and many of them, well over half of them are based on a genuine specific culture. It's not, it's not just that, Oh, there are lizard people. It's that, Oh, the Mesoamerican and um, South American empires like the Aztecs uh, and the Inca were literally taken and combined with this ancient lizard creature idea to create um, a race that shares geography, culture, design, armor, religion uh, with something that actually existed in our world, but exaggerated to make it fit in a very exaggerated universe. 
Yeah, yeah, I was actually um, going to bring up the lizard men as a because there are there are plenty of quote unquote human examples that are very easy to point to, like the particular cultural touchstones of the empire, or or uh, I don't know how far back Kislev actually goes, but I love Kislev in Total War Three. Well, Kislev is very old. Very okay, old. cool, because I love Kislev. They're awesome. So it's but, like you know you got so you know we have the obvious human examples with you know Kislev being very Eastern European and Russian. You got the empire for the Holy Roman Empire, Bretonia's uh, France combined with Arthurian legend. Uh, but then even when you get into the mythical races, the, the Dark Elves are very heavily inspired by imperialism America. Um, well, a British viewpoint of it anyway. Which is um, funny that the Brits want to talk about imperialism. And yes, isn't there, isn't, isn't there a, a, a faction in the in the game that's like – tiger people that is a lot of south asia yeah so you have you have the tiger men of end which is india um but end is a mostly a land of humans but it's known as the land of a thousand gods uh because they have this very complex religion that's massively polytheistic and has so it's called the land of a thousand gods because there are literally over a thousand gods if not more and they worship these terrifying humanoid to the West, they would look like beastmen, but they're not beastmen. They're far more sophisticated uh, and actually have are like a stable species that have goals and can be spoken with and negotiated with. Um, we have, uh, you I, know, I do feel like you could probably just based on the races I know of, you could probably assign basically every faction to a real world cultural thing. I will say that we've done that. That's uh, one of our first episodes. of that he broke down the inspiration for all the factions. Yeah. yeah. So some of them are very are not based so much on a culture as like a very specific um, idea from a British perspective in the sense that we you know we spoke about how um, orcs and goblins are just hooligans like they're not yeah. based on any culture they're literally just like just the dumbest bastards at the local football game you know <laughs> well, a, good, a good example of that is the race that i really got into anyway there's the race that i got into which is the skaven who you could easily argue especially when they have things called like storm vermin or whatnot that they are kind of a british opinion of fascism which is because their actual connections to real world fascism are pretty light but when you think about how people who are not fascist view fascism you could see a lot of where the skaven design comes from yeah, and base and coming from the '80s, they're uh, you know they're obviously taken from a lot of the kind of more dark and over the top science fiction ideas about like science running rampant with no uh, restraint whatsoever. In the sense that if you yeah. kind of break down the Skaven and you really look at the at the four branches, they're they tend to be very very heavy over the top uh, popular '80s sci- uh, sci-fi ideas taken just to a hilarious extreme, where you have like an overfocus on the development and uh, control of biology with Clan Mulder. And you have uh, the fear of like di- weaponized disease and um, the uh, overzealous zealotry of religion with Clan Pestilence, especially with them being like, uh, a, a, you know, Clan Pestilence are literally a race of creatures that went from what the world, the, what we think of as the old world to the new world where they brought with them a whole bunch of infectious diseases and they literally turned into this diseased, horrible cult that ended up killing lots of the natives and starting massive wars and wiping out <laughs> cities because they and, brought these horrible new diseases with them. And of course it was and of course it was Warhammer's version, uh, Warhammer Fantasy's version of technology unchecked that creates a nuclear ex- device. So 
Yeah. And, and so like there, there's, because of that, the Warhammer world has this, it, you know, it's this interesting thing of I, there are tons of people that like to try and find their own personal cultures um, within the Warhammer world, which not everybody makes it, but uh, quite a few people do and exist either as like small references or larger ones. I mean, probably one of the most talked about things going on in the Total War sphere right now and the fantasy sphere is many, many people now that Grand Cathay has shown up and Kislev has come back and the two of them have proven immensely popular. A lot of people are pushing very, very heavily to get Talea, who is based on yeah. Italy, and Estalia, who's based on Spain, and uh, Araby, who's based on... Um, I heard Araby. Most, I heard a lot of Araby. Uh, in yeah, place. Middle Eastern cultures. And uh, End, you know, which also, is from India. Isn't because, like... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but... Uh, no, you're good. I know I've seen pictures of, like, models from Kislev, so, like, I knew they already existed. I have heard, though, that Cathay was basically just, like references and was not really a constructed thing and that ca is the company behind total war for those not in the know had to do a lot of their own invention of it is that true so the the way it essentially breaks down is that uh cathay you are correct in that cathay did not exist like in any real form uh, there were very very vague references but they were few and far between and a lot of them were somewhat contradictory and it wasn't very well explored. And for those who don't know, Cathay is basically Warhammer China. I mean, it's more yes. complicated than that, but pretty much. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, China and a couple of other little Asian things thrown in. But it, um, but when Creative Assembly was working on Total War Warhammer 3, essentially what happened is the games were doing successful enough, uh, along with a few other factors, that Games Workshop really kind of embraced the idea of bringing Warhammer back. And it's not exactly clear who approached who but what we do know is that basically an agreement was made that uh Cathay should feature as one of the uh the leading races in total war warhammer 3 and so um basically what happened is that games workshop did most of the heavy lifting when it came to actually designing the race but CA got to have a lot of input and share their own expertise as Creative Assembly is a company that is very focused on uh, historical research and games when it comes to warfare. Uh, that's what the Total War series is literally all about. You know, they had Total War Three Kingdoms. They they covered a lot of these places that are not yet fully explored within Warhammer Fantasy. So you know that with that relationship already established, the two of them were able to work together to make something pretty crazy. You know, uh, it, it's not the topic we were going down, but I'm glad you brought that up because it fills in a gap that I had been confused about for a while because, quick sidebar, I love Total War Warhammer 3. Uh, I think Cathay are a really cool faction. They make absolutely no sense in the campaign setting as far as I'm concerned. Like, they feel the <laughs> most disjointed from everything happening. So I was like, literally, why are they here? I love them. But why are they here? But a business decision behind the scenes that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, um, it, it, it's kind of it's kind of a thing of that the games are doing so successfully that we've we've kind of magically reached a point that I I, I cannot be more excited and happy about it. But Games Workshop has turned a corner from going Warhammer is dead. We don't want to talk about it. To Warhammer is back, baby, and we want to explore the entire planet. We want to leave no stone unturned and we want like we want everything everything which yeah. which is funny because getting in a total war got me gave me kind of the kick well i still haven't like collected in proper but i currently have 
five models from Sylvaneth, which are AOS's version of the Wood Elves, essentially. There's more complicated than that. And I've got four Skaven models, three uh, three Storm Fiends and a, a Warlock Bombardier. But I plan to collect more. Although, that's one of those things that once I got into looking at fantasy and AOS models in particular, I did notice that uh, Skaven and the Seraphon, which are the Lizardmen, the ones Sotek first talked about when he was talking about Army, are... Seemingly the most desperately in need of model refreshes. So hearing that kind of thing makes me, oh, hopeful. <laughs> and put yeah. a pin in that because we'll circle back to that. That is one <laughs> of the fair. points I want to bring up. But I feel like we're at a great point of Warhammer Fantasy feels like a fully established universe. And part of that is it has decades of books and expansions and everything. And Age of Sigmar is just now kind of starting to take shape as a concrete setting. Well, I think, hold on, I think the important thing, though, that Sotek was starting to get to, and I think we kind of got there, was that the distinction of low fantasy, which seemingly has a different meaning depending on who you're talking to, and I understand why, because it's very easy to draw your own meaning from the words low versus high, but he's kind of defining it that it was grounded in a real, in our reality, and it's yeah, all from I, I, I do want to say that, like, I, I was one of those people, um who grew up only with Warhammer as really like my fantasy background. And so for me, that was the definition of low fantasy. But if you meet people who have a much more expanded background um, to them, that is ridiculous. They're like, no, Warhammer is high fantasy. Like it's, that's absurd. <laughs> You've <laughs> been me, talking that's, to Conan. That's not low fantasy. Are you kidding? Um, True. Because they would probably define low fantasy as things where like magic isn't probably even really a thing. Like, it, like game of Thrones might be closer to low fantasy. And even that's, game- pushing yeah. it no game so. of thrones is in there conan the barbarians in there but it's yeah, like where you come I, to it at so so i i wanted to explain that and i, th- I think i got there and that ultimately yeah, that I think, makes sorry the, that makes a distinction with age of a sigmar obviously you're trying to lead to is that it's more high fantasy because it's a lot less grounded in anything specific other than kind of fantasy yeah for I, lack of a better term tropes, i find right? the best way to refer to age of sigmar so that people like are able to instantly grasp what they're dealing with is cosmic fantasy yeah, you are dealing with a fantasy uh, world at a cosmic scale where cosmic level events are taking place on a regular basis. Yeah. And I think well, let's focus on that now, because I think that's kind of the strength of both of these settings is both settings provide what it says on the box. If you're looking for a little bit more kind of it's still kind of grounded, still kind of Tolkien-esque fantasy. Warhammer Fantasy's got you covered. There's gunpowder, there's magic. But, you know nothing too crazy and if you're like no no i want to take this up a notch warhammer age of sigmar is over here like all right i got deep sea elves i got guys made of lightning well actually hold on can i can i latch on that for a second because again as an as an outsider here's what i think is really interesting generally speaking in any fictional fantasy setting your humans are your anchor no matter what role they function within the overall narrative they're your anchor point that tends to be what they kind of do in fantasy there's usually that they're the most for their they can be anything. They're less specialized than your other fictional races, mostly because your other fictional races tend to be avatars, a very specific aspect of the human experience. That's a whole nother conversation. So take a moment to think about, uh, from an outsider perspective, what your quote-unquote primary human versions within each setting are. In Warhammer Fantasy, it's the Empire. As we said, they're basically the Holy Roman Empire. They've got some basic guns, and they've got some, like, magic and they've even got some flying like stuff. But generally speaking, these are just guys in armor. 
especially when you look at like Bretonia, but they're just knights, like medieval knights that happen to have some crazy tech. You look at Age of Sigmar and they're quote unquote humans. There while there are humans in Age of Sigmar with like the the free cities, the poster child human faction, quote unquote, the Stormcast Eternals are immortal angelic lightning entities that they the, the, yeah so um I, i'll put it this way um because uh i think i think most people are, are fairly familiar with the 40k universe i would i would hope that they're listening to your show especially um yeah warhammer fantasy is like the average human is like imperial guard but worse <laughs> because like, yeah. there's no like most of them don't have standard very good standard training or anything um and like have to bring their own gear and stuff um you know it's like basic fantasy adventurers in a world that is very poor and is like truly set in medieval times you know a lot of cities are not very well connected and times are hard and there's monsters everywhere um aos on the other hand the main human faction the main characters make space marines look like chumps yeah, like not, not to <laughs> not to underplay Space Marines. So Space Marines are still quote unquote based in some sort of reality. I mean, it's a ridiculous. Oh, yeah. sure. <laughs> it's a it's a ridiculous reality where we've got many organs and we can spit acid and breathe water. But Stormcast Eternals are literally forged on an anvil of their god from lightning and literally die and then are reborn from every, their lightning god. Yes, ev- well, every single Stormcast by definition is a demigod. They have a piece of a god inside of them that makes them true immortals. Now, their, immator- their immortality comes at a price. Yeah. But- Although I think it's interesting because the way you put that, it'd be like almost like the difference between Warhammer Fantasy and Age of Sigmar is like if there was another version of 40K where space marines just didn't exist and the guard was the poster child. Which, you know, the guard is cool. I have nothing against the guard. I love the guard. But I think that's like an interesting kind of base. Yeah, well, I, let's let's be frank and let's be honest here that uh, – and th- this – it, it, we'll kind of get into this in a little bit, but Age of Sigmar, the original idea behind Age of Sigmar and why it was very unsuccessful when it started was that the people behind it said, OK, fantasy is not as popular as we want it to be for a very long period list of reasons. I think we've even talked about that on a prior episode. But um, so because this is not as successful as we want, but 40K is very successful. Let's just make fantasy 40K. And that is literally all it is when yeah, it started. Yeah, it started out so well. Um, I think, yeah, I think the directions. important thing there, and I think the important thing there is that that statement at this point, I wouldn't consider a negative or a positive. It's just a this is what from a business decision they were doing. <laughs> yeah, and th- and that's how it began. Um, now it has evolved into something totally different, but that that is how it started. Yeah, and I mean that's something like a lot of people kind of still come back to when they do is like. Well, Warhammer Age of Sigmar, the lore sucks. The world's not developed. It's like that was the case. Yeah, but look and at I, I do want to say this before anyone goes. No, Age of Sigmar now versus where it started because I got into 40k right around the time Age of Sigmar came out. I saw the burning of the armies and the horrible lore. I'm like, <laughs> oh wow, this is this is rough. That's not the same setting anymore. I'm not saying Age of Sigmar is perfect, but I think. It is so much better as a setting and as a game than it was when it first came out. Undeniable. Undeniable. But also I, that no one can argue that. Yeah, but also that. that like a uh, that escalation of knight to demigod. I I think you can apply that to basically any race that is connected to a Warhammer fantasy race. Like 
You look at the Wood Elves and how in Warhammer Fantasy, they were mostly the kind of Wood Elves you would recognize from Tolkien, just with some stuff like, hey, uh, some of them are Ents as well. Now you look at their equivalent in Age of Sigmar, and they've all merged into the trees, and like they're all crazy tree people. With and one of them's in like a bee mech suit, and, and one of them's riding a colossal giant beetle, and that's their goddess who walks around with them. And and then you do you do that to the same like for most of it. I mean, Skaven only basically got one thing or one or two things, but the thing they did get was now they've got basically greater demon rats called vermin lords. They're these huge crazy things, which technically were in the end times, but it's a whole nother. Anyway, point is that 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 seems to be a the overriding philosophy in some way was for the races that we're carrying over, make them bigger, dial it to 11. Uh, and, no, that, and th- that's a hundred percent accurate. Every, every race got dialed up to 30, every single one without fail. And depending well, on what your priorities are that, well, uh, yeah, but depending on what your priorities are, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Well, that's it, really it depends. Are, well, so, so you, you may think that, Oh, well, the cities of Sigmar are like the empire. No, 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 no. The cities of Sigmar have walking cog fortresses, and they, they have, have cog fortresses in the lore. They have yet to be on the tabletop. Okay, well, okay. I, if you want to talk tabletop specifically, yes, the models have not changed that much. I what mean, the models can I, do I, has I changed a lot. I love the idea of cities in the lore, and then you look at the tabletop, and you're like, you're just like a failed garage sale. <laughs> well, fact, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> like that is still I can one tell, of the things that pisses me off the most. It's like you have the potential to be a really cool army, and you're just bobs and bits. It's like, come on, you you got it. Give me the cog fortresses. Give me the crazy high fantasy version of this empire that you could do one day. Which is which is one funny because looking looking at the the wall at my local game shop, it feels like the races that got the most not dialed up. And you could argue because several of them were already dialed up are the demons of chaos in general, because they kind of were already super dialed and the lizards that again, from what I can tell, and I'm not a lizard player, this is just from an outside perspective. It seems like they've gotten kind of screwed more than anyone else in AOS. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Cause that is something because fantasy, as I know, had this problem, but I feel like it's worse in age of Sigmar and that not all armies are treated remotely equally. In that some have huge, full, fancy lines, and others are just sitting there one model release at a time with a handful of kits. Uh, my prime example being, I don't want to throw Stormcast because Stormcast are Space Marine equivalent, but I feel like Slanesh compared to where Fire Slayers are is a night and day thing in model Although you, Although you got to mention the fact that because the f- philosophy, right, is that essentially Fantasy 40K, it makes sense that for good and for bad... Stormcast have gotten like everything, and because th- just Stormcast like Stormcast can fuck the fuck off. Okay, I'm tired. Hey, of <laughs> I'm not claiming like to support. I'm just saying that that's the. It makes sense that that's what they're doing when they're copying, at least from a business perspective, what 40k is doing. <laughs> so. I know. I'm just saying like you launched strong on Stormcast. That's great. We are five like six years on. Enough of the goddamn Stormcast. It does make me wonder what because. Space Marines have been in 40k for forever, so like that's they always been the case. Back. Yeah. But what was Fantasy's? What was that like before Age of Sigmar? Its releases? What were its model update structures like? I don't know. I wasn't there. So. Yeah. So Sotek, your is this was this a problem with Fantasy in that not all like certain armies just kind of got left by the wayside, edition after edition, or was it more balanced, or how did it go? So, Games Workshop has a very complicated history when it comes to how they handled 
model releases and additions and like new kits coming out. It was it was never consistent. I mean, in fantasy, we very, very notoriously left. So <laughs> we had six edition, which six edition went OK. Everybody got a book. And then when except for the Chaos Dwarfs, actually, Chaos Dwarfs did not get a book, but they got squatted, uh, which does not mean anything anymore. Funny enough, I was about to say <laughs> um, but in uh, seventh edition, um, almost everybody got a book. Bretonia did not. So Bretonia did not get a book in seventh edition. And then in eighth edition, we got the end times earlier than we were really supposed to. And the Beastmen and the Skaven never got an eighth edition book. So they were really bad about updating model rules and ranges. And it wasn't, they had like a really bizarre strategy back then because they were stupid. They were super stupid. Age of Sigmar has been much more consistent in that pretty much everyone has gotten a book every edition. And if they got skipped over for some reason, there would be a campaign supplement that would immediately like catch them up and allow them to be pseudo competitive. Um, and the model ranges are actually significantly faster and higher quality now than they were back in the fantasy days. And that even when you have a range like fire slayers, for instance, which is very niche at the same time, you could argue um, that they don't really like need a massive range. They're not super exciting, but at the same time, it's because as a concept, their race is freakishly specific. It's so pigeonholed that it's very difficult to expand on the idea where it's like, okay, the concept for this race is we took Warhammer Fantasy Slayers and we added a fire theme to them. It and that's all like, we got. Uh, it sounds like like Harlequins, for example, in 40K have feel that way to me. Yeah, but uh, Harlequins got folded into Eldar because they realized you can't... The Yenead, yeah, it's a whole other thing. Yeah, I was just I, we kind of saw that with Age of Sigmar because orcs used to be divided down the line and they kind of got reformed. Skaven, everyone, every clan used to be an army... And they kind of got folded back in. Well, hold on, kind of, except that orcs, I will say this because I've done enough. Orcs right now have, in Age of Sigmar, have three distinct kind of orc armies you could run. So you're right. here, here's one of the big strengths of Age of Sigmar. Um, let, let's, let me kind of like break a couple things down. One of, one of the big mighty strengths of Age of Sigmar is that it is clearly being planned out <laughs> like there is a group of individuals <laughs> who are working on this constantly together and are aware of one another's ideas. And one there's of no uh, when you talk when you talk to us about the end times, there was a feeling of the right hand not knowing what the left hand is. Yeah, doing. exactly. So. <laughs> um, and th there's kind of this thing where we have seen armies get combined um, and split up. Um depending on various circumstances. But so in first edition, we had a lot of armies split. So like the ogres split into two books, uh, the beast claw raiders and the gut busters. Uh, actually, I think it was just the beast claw raiders. If I remember right. Oh no, I think, I think they had two individual books, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, all, and then all of the chaos factions had their own books. And then the Skaven seemed like they were splitting up because they got a clan pestilence book. And it was just kind of like, Everything was just all over the place. And Earth then it's not a good uh, out of the gate well, representation. Yeah. But then as we advanced through the editions and we're in, we, we uh, started third edition um, a little less than a year ago. Um, 
they there's a plan nowadays where we see factions that have a lot of similarities and they are armies that you could reasonably see being united as far as like culturally is concerned combining into books i mean hell just looking at the stormcast eternals the stormcast eternals used to be a collection of books it was yep. each separate chamber had its own book that's nonsense um, sorry <laughs> they, they were they were treated like space marines so yeah. instead of it being a space marine book it was you know you had like you had the regular stormcast eternals and then you had the uh order draconis and then you had the or, uh the the star strike chamber or, i don't remember to, all the stupid names to be so there Space Marines could pull back on that fucking behavior too. Yes, no. Space French. Marines, okay. I, I'm I'm happy with the supplements, but the everything else is starting to get out of hand here. Yeah, but <laughs> but in in AOS, they they uh, they the cleaning up was marvelous for us. Where it's like, oh, all the Stormcast Eternals, one book, great. All of the Oryx, one book, great. And but the thing is, is that within each of those books, there are distinct subcultures that have very unique rules and play styles if you focus on a single uh, subculture. So like Lots. if you if you take an Auric War Clans book, well, if you run like a Great Wall, a Great Wall is you're taking all three subspecies of orcs together and they have specific rules and interactions and abilities. However, uh, most players don't do that. Most players run pure Iron Jaws. And pure Iron Jaws is you are only allowed to take Iron Jaws units with the iron jaws keyword. So you're basically playing it as if they were their own book and they have very unique special rules and abilities for an iron jaw army. Some people like to run a, a bone splitter army, which is just savage orcs. And yeah. then some people like to run a cruel boys army. So like, they're just, it, it's very interesting. Exactly. Sorry. I was going to say that exact same thing. I was just going to say that it's funny because the bone splitters to me kind of look like they could mesh well with the iron jaws, but the cruel boys seem like, they look like almost a completely different thing. So, but I mean that in a positive way in this context. So, yeah, but there's no hard and fast rule for it. I mean, if you go back to fantasy, orcs and goblins were a single book. It was just green. Like, depending on the edition, the book was either called orcs and goblins or greenskins. In, in Age of Sigmar, those are two completely different books, but they each have their own subcultures. So now there's an orc book that has three orc subcultures, and there is a goblin book that has three distinct goblin subcultures. I have also heard, and this is just like I was reading Reddit forums about this. I happened to Google a term, and it led me down this snake hole. <laughs> uh, the term hero hammer, from what I can tell, stems from a very specific thing that Warhammer Fantasy was doing in 6th and 7th edition, where there was a, a, a real tendency in that case to focus heavily on character releases and character rules to the point where you were basically playing Dynasty Warriors. Yeah, it's it's kind of a complicated subject because it it depended on what kind of circles you were playing in and who how people were building their armies. But the, so the issue that fantasy had Age of Sigmar does not have this issue because they don't let you do this. But in fantasy, one of the big problems we had was that you could customize your own characters like all of your characters were customized. So you would like take. A, you would take a lord. So, like, let's say you were playing Lizardman, you take a Source Old Blood, and the game would tell you, okay, here's your Source Old Blood, here's his basic profile. He costs 175 points. Now, you can take him with an additional hand weapon, which will give him plus one attack, or you can take him with a shield, which will give him plus one armor, or you could take him with a spear, which will give him plus one uh, 
damage on the charge or plus one strength on the charge. Or you can run him with a halberd, so he's at plus one strength at all times, but it takes two hands. Or you can run him with a great weapon, which is plus two strength, but makes him always strike last. And those are each worth a specific amount of points. So like a shield would be two points. A halberd would be five points. A great weapon would be six points. And then it would say, okay, now you can put him on a mount. If you take him on foot, he's cheaper, but he doesn't move as fast, but you can hide him in a unit. Or you can put him on a cold one, which makes him a little faster, but he can't hide an infantry unit now, and he's a little easier to snipe out. Or you can put him on a Carnosaur, so he's a big stompy monster, but he's a lot more expensive, and he can be sniped much easier. Then, on top of that, you gotta go, okay, well, now I also get 100 points worth of magic items. So now I'm able to open the core rulebook to the five-plus pages of magic items, and my own personal army book, which has its own unique two to four pages of magic items, and I'm going to customize how this player functions. Do I want him to be super tanky, so he has a really high armor save and a really high ward save? Do I want to do a lot of damage, so maybe give him more attacks or more strength or more armor piercing or higher initiative, so he always strikes first? Or do I want him to have like a weird special rule, so that he can like move a lot faster or he deploys somewhere else at the start of the game or he's invisible the first turn or he has fire attacks or he regenerates or he could heal or he could use magic. Okay, well, if I take magic, what lore of magic am I going to take? I have eight different lores of magic for most armies to pick from. So now i got to pick a lore of magic. Well, how do I want to customize how I'm going to make those spells? What kind of arcane item can I take? What level is my wizard going to be? Because every time I pay for a wizard level, I'm going to be getting another spell and more dice but I can't necessarily guarantee how many dice I'm going to have. So like there was like billions of choices going into almost every single thing you were doing. And because the characters had so much customization, people would find the most optimal builds and you could just make some busted ass characters in certain armies. And that's where hero hammer came from. 40 K breaking the game. Yeah. But but (laughs) description, like I was on board with like, that sounds like 40 K until he mentioned the magic stuff. And then it was like, okay, the level you're describing sounds. And I feel like that's another point in age of Sigmar's favor versus fantasy. Uh, I haven't played since second edition. I don't know what third edition looks like, but when I played in second edition, the simplicity and the straightforwardness of age of Sigmar was just beautiful. Yeah, like, it's a nice literally... blend of complexity and rules without feeling like, good God, there's too much shit going on. Age of Sigmar is, okay, pick a character, and if the character is riding on something, it is essentially just a totally different character. So, like, pick which pick a character you want. Now, he might have the ability to have different weapon options. Most don't. They're just like, this is how the characters run. But some of them, they're like, okay, your character can run like this or like this. And if he's holding this item, use this profile. And if he's holding this item, use this profile. And then your army can take a single magic item from a very, very small restricted list. So you're going to have like at most five to six options um, and you can only have one item per army unless you build your army in a very specific way that can the most items I've ever seen in an army is like three. Um, I, well, I have not played an Age of Sigmar game. I have just an, I have Battlescribe on my phone for my 40k games with my friends. And after I got into Skaven and uh, Sylvaneth, I just went and tried to make armies without having the core rulebook. So I have no idea what I'm doing. But it, it it's interesting because it seems like the complexity isn't in the same places I'm used to it because when you put a character or a, a unit or whatever in the the thing, there's not there's not options for them. The options are in things like 
what sort of endless spells are you bringing? What are the battalion, uh, what, I don't know what the word is, but like the certain constructions of units that together give you special abilities. But the actual units themselves don't seem to have the same kind of complexity built into them that like I'm used to in 40k. Again, not saying a positive or a negative, just an interesting observation, no, I thought. Age of Sigmar is about building synergies in your list. So combining characters, units, monsters, and endless spells to create certain kinds of synergies that you will then try to utilize on the battlefield in order to win. So it it's 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 not really it depends on the army. Some armies can still essentially play Hero Hammer. Like if someone shows up with Archaon on the table, Archaon is like the vast majority of the list, and he's this gigantic, terrifying model that can destroy just about anything. I mean, he but, better be. That is what is top five best looking models and on yeah, the wall. Yeah, but there, there are a lot of ways to. There are a lot of ways to counter something like Archeon, and it takes a very good player to typically use a lot of those big, big dudes because it's very easy for them to get overwhelmed if they're played poorly. And because and Age of Sigmar is much more focused on objectives than fantasy ever was. Fantasy was 99% about killing your opponent. Um, it, it was like it was very rare that you were fighting over objectives. Um, you were fighting over victory points. So your goal was to deal as much damage to your opponent. It was to kill more of your opponent's units value wise than he killed of yours. So fantasy had a really big problem with balance. Because it was all about killing your opponent, and that was it. So yeah, if your you army the, was... You could go for the big, uh, the high-priority stuff. Yeah, so if your army was, like, super killy or super tanky, that was all that mattered. Um, whereas in Age of Sigmar, you can get tabled by your opponent and still win the game. Like, that can happen fairly regularly. Because you played the objectives and you outmaneuvered your opponent. Yeah, sure, he still killed all your crap, but that doesn't matter. We're fighting for objective points. Which, sidebar, but I like that about these kind of games. I played a, Ulrich knows this, but I played a game a while back in 40k of Sisters v. Knights, and I got tabled on the final turn. And the guys I was, the guys I was playing with thought that that was, uh, meant I lost. We're like, let's check. Nope, I still won on victory points, which creates a thing in my head of like, like a Rogue One scenario, like, oh, we died to a man, but we got the job done. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's a far more interesting strategy game, um, generally speaking. I, I find fighting for objectives, you know, tends to require more strategy <laughs> than just obliterating your opponent. Obliterating your opponent tends to be much more of like a pure numbers game or just getting lucky with purely lucky with dice, so to speak. Whereas if you're playing for objectives, like there's a lot more strategy involved because it, it it's not as reliant on list building or pure luck. There's a lot there's a lot of what's going on on the table to determine how things are going to go down. You know, but if you were playing Warhammer Fantasy, yeah, if you were playing Warhammer Fantasy, like it doesn't really matter what edition, at least six through eighth. Um, if I showed up with like like. In seventh edition, if your opponent showed up with a like a really strong Demons of Chaos army, there wasn't really a lot you could do. Um, like you just had to pray to God he wasn't going to make his ward saves um, because that was like especially when the demons were fairly new and they completely broke the game. That was like that was the only way you were going to win is if he just sucked at his dice rolls. 
And so we we had a lot of fantasy was not nearly as balanced as Age of Sigmar is. Age of Sigmar still has balance problems, but we also live in a much different atmosphere than we did back then, because back then Games Workshop didn't give a they did not give a damn how well balanced the game was. They just didn't care. So they would release models. That was it. But also, yeah. I, I looked at, and this was probably about a month ago, I was, I was perusing Goonhammer, and I looked at their Age of Sigmar tournament results from, like, the last, you know, few months. And from what I can tell, the the differential in win rates of factions was about 10%, meaning, like, the lowest ones were, like, in the 45, and the highest ones were in, like, the 55. Compare that to, I looked at the same list at, like, 40k, and at the time, you know, Drukari was sitting at, like, 70%. Versus, you know, the highest age of Sigmar one was at like 55% or something. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and AOS isn't perfect. There's still balance problems, but like Games Workshop's actually pretty reliable now about getting out like balance. Like they don't really balance the game, but they're like trying to balance the game at least every few months, um, which that didn't exist in fantasy, which to be fair to fantasy, you know, is kind of an unfair advantage for AOS. It was um, a different time. We have the yeah. internet now. But like, I, I no, I don't think anyone with a straight face could say that fantasy was a more balanced experience than Age of Sigmar. Um, I, I could totally get someone saying that it was a more fun experience, maybe, or that it they preferred that experience because of the 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 rank and file system. Like, I love I love rank and file strategy games, um, and that's one thing that I'm not a fan of with Age of Sigmar. I don't like the skirmish style format. But yeah, um, because the, it, it, there's something just really nice about having like actual unit formations. It's a visual appeal. It looks yeah. like you're commanding an army. Yeah. Well, there's there's also like certain tactical things that I prefer about it. Like I like the concept of flanking mattering. Like mm-hmm. if your opponent manages to outmaneuver you and hit you in the flank, that should be devastating. And that does not exist as a concept in skirmish based games. The closest mm-hmm. you get is you can envelop your enemy, but it's not quite turning the line. Yeah, no. Well, you know, in fantasy, if you hit someone in the flank, there was literally a rule for disrupting ranks that would give them huge penalties to combat resolution and stuff like that. And like we had we had a complex psychology system that was so fun and engaging. Like some people didn't like it because it could come off as complicated. But, you know, there was like a panic system. So like if a unit six inches away from you got completely obliterated by shooting all friendly units within six inches of that unit would have to take a panic check because they just saw a group of their allies get literally like obliterated to cinders. And I don't care how tough you are. Most people would look at that and go, Oh shit. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't be here anymore. You know, we had rules for panic and fear and terror and hatred and stupidity. Um, Like it was, it was so, So, it was so fun. So, so far we've basically established that, in comparison, in comparing Age of Sigmar to, to Fantasy, we have a setting that is gone uh, to a a higher, a different level, uh, the cosmic versus somewhat grounded. We have a game that is mechanics are simplified, a objective focused, and I had a third word from basically what you were just saying, and I lost it, but simplified and objective focused, and we have a oh and balanced. That's right. And we have a company that seems to be, if anything, a little more on the ball about their uh, uh, their kind of releases, but they're also a lot more focused on one set of factions when it comes to comes to the game. So these are like the it seems like so far in our conversation, these are the primary points of distinction that we've come we've landed on. Yeah, there I, is one the more other big one we got to talk about, though. I, I have one as well. 
right. Well, I'll go with my first because this one's real simple. And this is probably the single biggest advantage Age of Sigmar has over fantasy in that Age of Sigmar dumped a lot of the worst baked in elements of fantasy in that it has women, it has non-white people in their armies where fantasy was like, nope, 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 that you can't have female doors. There's not enough of them. Nope, nope, can't do There's no brown people in Warhammer. What are you talking about? Araby isn't an army. And Age of Sigmar kind of came out of the gate with like, all right, what's the, what's the number one problem? Racism and misogyny. Let's curb that up just a little bit. Well, I will admit that, and this is a super low-hanging fruit, but the fact that Stormcast Eternals, which are, again, essentially fancy space marines, didn't bother... <laughs> Gender coding them, them? Yeah, or or race coding them. It's yeah, Stormcast no, like right out of the gate, so. they're like, we're going to, you know, fix the thing we haven't fixed in 40k because we're cowards. <laughs> I'm so fucking sure. calling it what it is. It's fucking cowardice that they are still like... All right, I, I guess we can make female guard heads. Uh, we'll just, you know, pack them in with Cadians, the fucking herpes of Warhammer. Oh, All right, <laughs> tell us how you really feel, Oric. <laughs> I hate Cadians, goddammit. I, I will say that uh, that that is definitely a significant strength of AOS. It's they, they still use that card from time to time. Of they will have scenarios where they're like, okay, well, Fire Slayers don't have any female fighters. Like, all the Fire Slayer models are male. Like we we know what female we we have seen lady fire slayers in like the lore, um, but they don't have any minis. Um, like those kinds of things do still exist, but they're far more rare. You know where it's yeah. like Caradron overlords do have very distinctly lady models. Stormcast Eternals are very mixed, um, and like uh, there's a far far more massive. Um, like they heavily encourage you know, to have a wide ver- variety of, like, skin colors for all the races. Um, and, like, you know, we they gave us the first, um, like, black special character uh, with um, a Bastion, who is, like, the Lord Commander of the... Like, he is the biggest, baddest boss of the Stormcast Eternals, other yeah, than, like, the Celestine Prime, <laughs> uh, who... Say, I'm, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I've seen, for good and for bad, when I say this statement, I'm pretty sure I've seen Reddit forums comparing Bastion to Vulcan, so... Yeah, I mean, but, like, Vulcan... Yeah, like I Vulcan, said, for good and bad. Yeah, that's, Vul- that's, Vulcan, <laughs> is, Vulcan is a cheat. Like, he is not... He's not... He's just very... He's got... Vulcan is burnt. <laughs> no, I'm not saying, yeah. honestly, no, those like, the fact that people made that comparison shows that there's still a, why are like, you comparing don't these get me wrong. two specifically? I'm not, I'm, not, but... I'm not trying to shit on Salamander's players, but if uh, someone <laughs> comes up and they're like, well, Salamander's are black, it's like, sit the fuck down. Like, shut up. You are overcooked bacon. You are not, shut up and sit down. Um, that's kind of my point yeah yeah. bastion bastion is very clearly a black man who is very deliberately designed to have the facial structure of a black man yeah Yeah, exactly that is the big thing the agency and you kind of see it coming with the warhammer old world reboot and the fact that they're adding in cathay they're talking about doing all these other factions like oh maybe we should focus on factions that aren't it's it's a huge deal in warhammer the old world um, like, like that's it's one of the most major focuses and like there's uh, there's been some bitching about it but the vast majority of the community is like oh cool like ice guard 
The concept mm-hmm. of Ice Guard was, oh, there's an all-female elite unit in Kislev. And there were some people that were like, it's like, shut up. Yeah, it's just like, like, it's like, like, it's like, it's like, it's like Age of Sigmar dumped cool. so much of that with their, you know, thing, and it's for the better. And you kind of see Game Workshop going, oh, maybe we should, you know, take that over and do it when we, you know, do our old fantasy. Let's see, uh, China, India, let's get some, you know, let's bring back Araby, uh, Yeah, but like, you, you open like the, so the main thrust, funny enough for fantasy, a lot of people think it's the Total War games as far as like updating the lore, it's actually not. The, the main thrust for updating the lore and showing us what what Warhammer is going to become is the uh, is Cubicle 7, who writes the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th Edition books. And those books are so good, it's not even funny. I've and, been eyeing those real hard. And the vast range of like cultures and races and genders you see in those books is wild. Um because they they just dive right into it. Like there are tons of black people and people from like the Southlands and Araby and like all these different cultures and stuff in the empire. Like there's like just, and there's tons and tons of lore on it now too. Like they're no longer these like mysterious unknown groups. They're just, they're all over the damn place. It's a I fantasy know. universe. You don't have to take the same template yeah, as like, ours. Is, is the, is the, Vast majority of the people born in the Empire white, yes. But are all of them? No. Uh, are there are there people who have immigrated from other countries and married into families in the uh, either they live there now and have had kids or they married into them and you know have had kids? Yeah, they're all over the place now because that's how the world works. <laughs> yeah, I, I know you, you can just... definitely see Games Workshop getting ahead of the 40k problem. Yeah, and for I don't like I I'm gonna be honest I don't envy them on the 40k thing like fantasy and Age of Sigmar have already crossed that veil and we're good. Yeah, I, 40k is in a fucking pickle. Oh, um, yeah. and, and like even if you go back to second edition uh, Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, which was roughly sixth edition Warhammer Fantasy, so we're talking early 2000s. Like you read the roleplay books and there are all these rules about like you you'd open like the Bretonia book right? They had a book called uh, Knights of the Realm. Um, which allowed you to play Bretonian characters. And they have this whole thing where they're like, okay, so in Bretonia, like Bretonia is a fairly harshly gendered country. And um, traditionally women are not allowed to, to play a knight. However, here is a set of rules for how you can play a female knight, because we've created rules about how in history, there were women who pretended to be men so that they could fight on the battlefield for those they loved or, you know, like rare exceptions happened. And here's the story of Rapunzel. De- uh, uh, Rapunzel, and it makes me sad how, that she's a unique situation, but she's awesome. Well, anyway, <laughs> yeah, but but the book goes to say this is her situation in case you would like to replicate that for your character. These events have happened. There are people who break the rules. These are guidelines, not laws. Um, and that was built into fantasy. Like fantasy was never about the idea of oh, there's no such thing as female dwarf fighters. That's not true. If you go back and read our old lore from 6th edition or even 5th edition, there are super powerful and famous female dwarf fighters. There were these, like, Valkyrie women who would go kick the shit out of people. There was Queen Helga, who was terrifying. She was so terrifying that when she died, the dwarves built a giant cannon and named it after her because they hoped that imbuing it with her name would make it even more devastating. Like, there's all this history and lore. Like, one of my favorite books from Warhammer Fantasy, which is from that era of fantasy, is called The Black Hearts. 
and the Blackheart's omnibus by Nathan Long. I don't want to spoil too much of the story, but it delves very deeply in how in the Empire, women are not allowed to join the army um, for a myriad of reasons. And one of the characters is secretly a woman. And you find that out through the course of the first book. And it deals with the ramifications of that and like why women in the Empire traditionally aren't in the army and why she is pretending to be a man and like how this it, it happens. It's just the way the world is. And it's fucking fascinating. By the way, I know it's just a side comment you made, but I was filled with rage at the idea that anyone doesn't like the Ice Guard because they're like my second favorite unit in that whole game. Anyway. <laughs> no, there's definitely some of the old nastiness in there. Like, oh boy, the comments leading up to Cathay were... Yeah, and that's always going to happen. Like, yeah. I'm always... I am I am always going to have to deal with whenever, like, someone just happens to bring up, like new lore especially when it comes to like new human races there's always going to be someone that shows up on a twitch stream and goes oh what about the pygmies oh fuck those people and it's going to be like yeah the pygmies were a thing that happened and it was super gross and games workshop doesn't like want to talk about it anymore and the last story they wrote about the pygmies was literally them poking fun at themselves and being like because the characters they literally do a self-insert empire character who tries to treat the pygmies like animals and they end up killing him. <laughs> it's like he gets <laughs> murdered um, because he was a fucking idiot. <laughs> uh, so it, it's just like they, yeah, Games Workshop has some, an ugly history with a couple things, but well, honestly, I, I love is, the effort they've been putting into it in recent times. Yeah, I do feel like that's a risk you take when you do what we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation when, okay, we're going to base a bunch of our fictional races off of real world races and you know if you do your job right then you should we wouldn't have these kind of conversations but i just feel like that's an inherent risk you take of like getting to be insensitive or not treating a culture yeah. with uh, well, the proper respect or and, so. and and to be fair um like this doesn't excuse it but it was also the 80s you know yeah and understanding and culture has a really nasty history we only we kind of touched on that with the whole we talked about the tolkien in effect like it's kind of baked in there, but it's nice to see them getting away from it and just kind of, you know, owning that they're like, no, we're, we're done. We're, we're not going to even bother to, you know, do this anymore. Okay. So, so tech, you said you had a, another distinction with fantasy. Yes. Nevertheless you want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I love, I love how on topic we stay here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So one of, for me personally, as someone that is really focused on lore, my the biggest reason that, frankly, uh, up until the old world, I have liked AOS more than fantasy is that Age of Sigmar has a moving narrative. OK, good. I, ho- I was hoping you were going to bring this one up because if you weren't, I was going to because I desperately want this system in 40K. Well, we talked about this. I remember we talked about this when we talked about the old world, that it was like one of those things where Sotek uh, brought it up and he talked about it a little bit. And we were and I was literally like, oh, so the thing they should do with narratives in general. Yeah, like fantasy, um, fantasy really fell apart when the narrate when the uh, the timeline stagnated. Um, There there was a while where it was moving ahead, like and it kept moving. Like seventh edition was a ton of fun because like we got to see the ramifications of the storm of chaos and the Albion crisis, all this crazy shit. And it was like, oh, this is fascinating. And then because they wanted to do the end times, we hit eighth edition and they rolled the timeline back like 10 years um, and they deleted a whole bunch of stuff. And that that killed it 
that literally shot fantasy right in the back of the head. And um, like Age of Sigmar has had a very aggressive moving timeline because they're not obsessed with focusing on one particular moment. They're not 40 K and fantasy's most damning feature. And the shittiest part about both universes was always that games workshop was obsessed with building in the building, the universes up to an apocalyptic tipping point and then saying, okay, every single race is at the absolute Zenith of their power and is about to set off and the world's about to go into war. And now we can't do anything for the next 30 years (laughs) because if anything happens, like we're just kind of SOL. Um, like what, what, how, how do we move the narrative forward? If like, the, you know, it's pop- really funny. It, it's really funny because the last time we talked about how it seemed like 40K was starting to take baby steps in that direction. Like, I'm amazed. I'm absolutely amazed that they gave us a definitive answer to the Octarius War, that that has ended. It's this – I don't know if they're going to do anything with it going forward. Supposedly they should, but I'm just saying that, like, the fact that they even made that kind of call is, is like, amazing. Although I've yeah, heard well, that Age of Sigmar does some crazy I'll, stuff. I'll, I'll say it from the Raptors that 40K is finally breaking and admitting that it needs the AOS playbook. It like, is and it is. Like, we're like, still getting campaign books that end in draws. Yeah, but you are also getting squats. That is true. Well, we'll see what they do with squats. Like, that's a big, exciting thing for yeah. sure. But, but, well, well, yeah, but they're, they're, they're about, trying stuff. Like, yeah, something is happening. Now, they're still yeah, baby-stepping it. Like, I think the last time we talked about this was, like, two years ago or something, and they've barely moved in all that time. Yeah, but think about exactly what Sotek just brought up, this idea of, like, of, of races getting up to this zenith of apocalyptic kind of thing and then not going where that was literally what the Octarius war was for a long time. Oh, yeah. Crypt inquisitor Crypman set up the situation. Orcs feed Tyranids. We have better hope that one of them doesn't come out on top because they're going to be super strong. And then that's why the, I thought that it was going to leave that there. And cause there were no important players anymore. Gas cool fucking fucked off. So, but then boom, like what? A couple so, months like, ago. Honest, honest question. <laughs> honest question. Can either of you tell me when the Octarian crisis started? Like in our our actual timeline, like our oh, world. God, what that's... year did the Octarian crisis start? I I have no idea. It was already there oh, when that's... I got in. So Ooh. like the, I, I, don't know I am sure, fairly it's... certain that is well over ten years old. It is. It's one hundred percent. And like it just ended. Yeah, Which but now is... we have a definitive Tyranids definitively won, killed the orcs, and now they're a huge threat. So. Yeah, but we also now, had Cadia, will they do anything that with that? That's the question. Correct. Correct. Yeah, you know, that's Cadia. that's where 40k has failed multiple times in the last few years. Is that they've been kind of ending these conflicts, and then there's no there's no consequences. Yeah, that's no, 40k's problem. So like, too. so like, what's an example of like an Age of Sigmar version of this kind of? Because we t- you mentioned one before, but again, this conversation was probably like two years ago. So for this recording, what's like something Age of Sigmar has done? Like, this? yeah. So like, Age of Sigmar, beautiful example of this is um, so like let's let's take first edition, which wasn't a great edition, right? We had the Rome Gate Wars. Well, oh, yeah. the Rome Gate Wars permanently killed um at least two beloved characters. Um, one was a Stormcast Eternal who was built up as literally one of the main characters. And in the last book, he literally gets just absolutely ripped to pieces. But like he does, he tries to fight Archeon. He didn't stand a chance in hell. 
Like he just gets his ass absolutely whooped. And then Dorgar devours his soul and he perma died. And, and then the Rome gate wars ends and the people who won all the little fights got to keep their gates and cities got built. And we had a 100 year time skip, but like, the like my favorite example though is the end of second edition we got the um oh god what are they what the realm what the hell is that saga called there's uh, the soul wars no it happened after the soul wars oh uh, the most recent one yeah i'm trying to remember what the hell it was called what was the name oh, of the saga yeah because that was where we got craig broken realms there we go broken Bro- realms. yeah there it is. so broken realms was insane because we had the whole buildup of second, like literally all of second edition built up to broken realms. We had books coming out and revealing characters who we had never seen before, who literally existed purely for the purpose of um, building up to the broken realm saga. So like second edition starts, we have cities established Great. Cool. What's happening? Well, we find out that, oh, there's an event going on called Malign Portents. Well, what is Malign Portents about? It's about all the gods since the gash is up to something. So everybody invades the realm of death and they release a they release some new factions to represent. Uh, actually, Malign Portents have, happened at the end of first edition. Now that I remember. But Malign Portents builds up and it like, boom, Nagash unleashes this giant, crazy, super ritual. And what does that result in? Well, it results in second edition. So we get endless spells. So we have a brand new gameplay feature. We get a brand new race with the night haunts because so much death energy has been unleashed everywhere that all the spirits are coming back. So now we have whole armies of spirit and that leads uh, we they you know, they release some more books. They release some more books. Then we get another uh, campaign event called the wrath of the ever chosen. Well, what's the wrath of the ever chosen? Well, after Archeon, uh, like one and lost more than he won during the Rome gate saga where he lost control of three of the gates. He lost two of them to order. He lost the, uh, the gate to the realm of fire and the gate to the realm of life. And then he sort of kind of lost the gate to the realm of beast. It was more like neutralized, but he didn't. So nobody owns it, um, to destruction. Um, death didn't really play a part. Well, that's what wrath of the ever chosen is now that, um, we had this big event where the night haunt came out and, Actually, sorry, I actually skipped an event. Um, what was the event? Was it Malign Sorcery? Or yeah. oh no, it was Soul Wars. The conclusion of the, yeah, the, the big Wars the big created. Soul Wars moment was that Lady Ollander, who was introduced with the Night Haunt, actually does something. She invades um, the city of Lake Lethis, and we get this huge fight, and we're like, okay, you know, this is going to be a big fight, so it's probably going to end with nobody winning. No, Death wins. Like Lady Ollander invades. There's this big fight. We get a fight between two special characters. We get the Celestine Prime, who's been completely undefeated up to this point. And the Celestine Prime is so freaking strong because he wields Galmaraz. He's he's basically the God of Heaven character that if he bops you on the head with Galmaraz, if he kills you with that, he can purify your soul from chaos. So like he can literally smack a chaos guy in the head and free what like little good there was in his soul and make a storm cast out of that while the chaos part of him dies. Like that's a crazy power. So we have this guy go up against lady Ollander who we've like gotten some lore about, but we haven't really got to see her fight. They have this huge throwdown in this storm vault. And we're like, Oh, we've been learning a lot about storm vaults and about how Sigmar has been like hiding things in these storm vaults that he couldn't destroy and to hide them away from people. So we get this big fight and it's like, Oh, okay. It looks like Ollander's about to lose. And that makes sense. You know, she's kind of new and this is the big hero. But what happens? No, Ollander wins. 
Because she like as they're fighting, she literally has this item that is on her profile and is like a one shot kill item. And she just fucking throws it at him and she kills the Celestine Prime, who we thought was basically invulnerable. He's like a Primarch, essentially. So he dies and death wins and they break out the big bad. And you go, oh, shit, what's that big bad? Well, a couple months later, new army book comes out, Osir Bone Reapers. And we're like, oh, OK, so second edition is about the ascension of death. Yeah, that is what it's about, because after the Ossiar Bone Reaper book comes out, a few months later, we get a new campaign called The Wrath of the Everchosen, where Death, which is all of the uh, the Death armies, invade Archeon's realm. Archeon isn't home. Archeon's off trying to free Slanesh. Oh, man, I wonder if that's going to have ramifications later, because Archeon breaks a couple of Slanesh's chains. Very spooky. And he fights a mysterious new elf faction that's light-themed. We don't know who they are yet. So we're like, hmm, that's kind of seen some interesting seeds. And Orphean Catacros and Lady Ollander invade the Wrath of the Everchosen. We get to see them fight characters we've seen before. They kill a couple of them. We get to see the Chaos Dwarfs for the first time. There's this huge battle. Orphean Catacros finally goes toe-to-toe with Archeon, and there's all these special characters. We got multiple Chaos special characters, multiple Death character special characters. Everybody's fighting. Couple, uh, basically, everybody kicks each other's asses until Archeon shows up and Archeon wins. Archeon beats everybody. But then he doesn't really, because even though he kills Catacross, Catacross is immortal. For him, getting killed is not a big deal. So he just immediately puts on a new body and reveals that while he was kicking Archeon's ass and distracting him, he built a giant fortress on top of the gate to the realm of death. So now death has successfully invaded Archeon's realm. So you go, okay, well, is that the end of second edition? No, we're only halfway done because then we get Broken Realms. So what goes on in Broken Realms? Well, first, Morithy tries to ascend to godhood. And while she succeeds, because Archeon did his whole thing in Wrath of the Everchosen, Slanesh manages to very strongly break free of almost nearly all of his chains. And Slanesh, using Morithy's ascension to godhood, which Morithy successfully comes a god, therefore moving the, uh, the timeline more, and teams up with the Ideneth Deepkin, creating a new dark elf race, essentially, by allying the two spooky elf factions. Slanesh, because his chains are so free in the midst of this ritual, barfs out two demigods, being his new children, whose technically father is Morathy and Slanesh is their mother. Uh, Morathy really is not cool with that idea, but it's the truth. So you think, wow, that was really exciting. That was book one. What happens in book two? Oh, Tekla shows up with his Lumineth, who were teased in The Wrath of the Everchosen. Now we've actually gotten to see them do some stuff. They invade the realm of death to, like, literally just bitch slap Nagash to piss him off. Nagash goes, oh, <laughs> I'm mad now. So Nagash invades the realm of light, and we get a literal, like, a Marvel comic beatdown. Like, there's this huge, epic Lord of the Rings-sized battle that builds up to Nagash at the absolute zenith of his power. Though he's he's in the realm of light, so he's a, he's not quite all the way up. But he's super fucking strong on top of the biggest mountain in the realm of light, towering over it, killing the mountain. Because if he kills the mountain, he'll basically kill a large portion of the realm of light. And Teclis goes up, and we get a god fight. We literally get multiple pages of just awesome, like, punch by punch lore of Teclis versus Nagash, a matchup that fantasy fans have been waiting decades for. 
It's fucking amazing. They're making references about Warhammer fantasy to each other. Teclas points out how Nagash has always failed at the very moment of his triumph because his arrogance gets the better of him. And this is going to be no different. And he's literally just like a human who's just he's so terrified of death that he claims to control it. And Nagash goes, hey, that's pretty cute from the guy who like completely betrayed his brother and murdered the vast majority of his race. And did you murder your niece? And like, so like, you're like, oh shit, this is getting personal. Like there's some (laughs) real shit getting thrown around. You want to trade bars with the gash? Come on. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, they're having this crazy epic fight and Teclas barely wins. Like he wins, but he barely wins. And the gash dies. Like the gash literally gets held down by chains of light after getting Kamehameha blasted in the face with like, I think it was like a hundred luminarchs. Um, but he gets like obliterate. He like, he gets messed up and all these big statues come over and they literally beat his bones into powder. So he's dead, but it's Nagash. He's the God of death. What is death to a death? God, an inconvenience. It's a major inconvenience, but it's an inconvenience. Now you may say to yourself, well, okay, if Nagash died, but he didn't really die, then it's not that big of a deal. It didn't have consequences wrong again, because the next big thing that happens is that Manfred von Karstein who purposefully failed the job that Nagash gave him knew Nagash was going to die. Cause he figured Teclas had it handled. He causes a civil war. He invades everybody because now that Nagash is out of the way, he's going to try and kill the other Mortarks and claim their power. So now we've got a civil war going on between Neferata and Manfred and shit's getting wild in the realm of death. And that's just book two. And then book three, like I could just keep going, but like where does, just where does is the- wild. Where does the crazy centaur destruction god fit in all this? That's the end of book four. Oh, geez. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, also, I K, love. None of our events do that. Our events go, and it was just a tie. They don't really link up. That's what I love about Age of Sigmar. Everything Sotek just described, it goes back to the very beginning of this setting, and it links, and it builds, and it leads, and it calls back to, and it's incredible. And I wish 40K could do a fraction of that. The, the example the would be thing, like if if they followed up if they followed up the Tyranid or the Octarius War with like the Tyranids going and invading some like place where like the Space Marines are and you have a bunch of characters involved with it and they die and you mean ball where yeah I like yeah. I was I was literally about to say that I was like I honestly honest to God I know there are some fans out there that would have hated this but I would have been so fascinated with 40k lore if Ball had actually fallen. Like, let the Blood Angels get away, you know, let them, like, get enough of their gene seed and, like, some emergency shit, and they manage to escape, but, like, let their planet actually fucking die yeah, we and got... have the Tyranids win. Like, that would have been insane. Yes, yeah. that would have been a reset. I mean, you blew up Cadia, but we refused to let Cadians die, so. <laughs> yeah, no, the new rumor is they're getting a new kit. Uh, yeah. By the way, I love from your description, and this is the feeling I've got, too. That in the fantasy AOS setting, Archeon is just the top Chad, and basically beating him involves not fighting him and just going around him. <laughs> so. They they've done a beautiful job with many of the characters. I Archeon in Age of Sigmar is wonderful. I kind of get the impression from everything I read about him that basically, other than Sigmar himself, no one's gonna f- beat. Uh, Archeon in a fight. So. No, and the thing that they've done that I love so much about it is that Archeon technically loses sometimes, 
But the only way he ever loses is because he literally just cannot be everywhere at once. That is his yeah. only weakness. That's exactly what I mean. It's like you don't fight him directly. You just distract him while you go to take care of the objective. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And like because he's he is a god like he, he's not technically a god. But like and the thing is, is that one thing they did with him that was so brilliant. And what I love about Age of Sigmar is that. It, it granted it took a little bit for Age of Sigmar to figure out how to do this properly, but now they're really hitting their stride with it. Is that it so deeply embraces fantasy as its ancestor and like passionately pulls from fantasy to help develop its characters, and that they don't just treat Archeon as a reset. You know, it's not this guy's just named Archeon. It's the exact same guy from fantasy, and he has evolved into AOS in multiple ways, not only physically, like with himself and Dorgar being a lot scarier, but like his goals have evolved very heavily. Like we get a book about Archeon that's really well written and kind of beautiful where we get this whole thing about Archeon's original goal in Warhammer Fantasy was to destroy the world so that all of the gods would die. That was his original plan, because as Archeon understood it, if all everybody on the planet died and like the chaos guys were successful and killed everyone, they would destroy their food supply essentially. And they'd starve to death. What Archeon did not know at the time. And a lot of fantasy fans didn't know because it technically wasn't in the lore was that there was a ton of other planets. So if the Warhammer world blew up, it just, you know, great. They won one fight, but ultimately, you know, whatever, they'll just go on, go play the great game somewhere else, which is what happened. So Archeon has adjusted his plan in Age of Sigmar to account for this because he was pissed about that. Like Chaos won and he won, but he personally lost in his own eyes because A, he didn't kill Sigmar and Sigmar beat him and got away. And B, he wanted to kill the Dark Gods and did not realize that what he did just made them more powerful and did nothing to hurt them. So what is he doing in AOS now? Well, now what Archeon has done is he has set himself up as the Grand Marshal, um, uh, the Grand Marshal of the Apocalypse. That's his like big title now. But Archeon Everchosen has set himself up where now he is not allowing his worshipers uh, or like all the people who come to know him, respect him to worship the dark gods. No, he brands them with his mark. They worship him. And Archeon has been using Dorgar's power as this terrifying um, transmuting demon and he's figured out that Dorgar can devour the essence of anything that he kills stormcasts demons etc and Archeon has been using this strategy to by pe making thousands upon millions of people worship him as a god and Dorgar devouring anything notable that they defeat he's been building up and up and up and up so what is Archeon's current objective to become a god so that he can literally kill the other chaos gods himself. He's going to go over there and stab the shit out of them. I and feel the like thing this is, plan has corn sealed approval. So <laughs> it, it, it does and it doesn't. And what's great is that the chaos gods know what he's doing. They know that's his plan, but there's two problems for the chaos gods. The first is that they are not willing to unify against him in order to beat him. Because all four of them, or technically five, are keenly aware of the fact that if one of them tried to strike out at Archeon, he would immediately manipulate the other four to gang up on that one, and he'd be totally fucked. 
So he has them in this stalemate against each other, and each one of them keeps sending their champions to try and kill Archeon. Like, all five of the Dark Gods are trying to assassinate him constantly, but Archeon wants them to keep doing this because they keep sending powerful champions that he kills and then Dorgar eats. So he's still just getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and he's got the Dark Gods in a deadlock where he's the only thing continuously gaining power. Hmm. So it's like he's gotten to know the dark gods and he knows them better than they know themselves and is playing them off each other in in a bid to get strong enough to kill them. And it's brilliant. But of course, if you ask Zinch about it, he'd say exactly as planned. Anyway, (laughs) all according to plan. Yep. All according to Keikaku. uh, Compare that to what Abaddon's doing in 40K. Not a lot. (laughs) Listen, I'll say it a million times. I'll say it here. Abaddon is just a way shittier Archeon. <laughs> You're not yeah. wrong. No one, I, who is, who's arguing that? <laughs> Fal- Failbadon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, but, he's got some great stuff in the lore, but it's just like they, they've got him shackled. Like, no, no, no. You can't do anything cool that might advance the story. Yeah. But, the point, but the point is we just like Sotek just went on this. It's like 10 minute diatribe about the awesomeness of just the first two books of Age of Sigmar, and, and I've been saying with Ulrich for a while now, like, it's not just a, okay, I admit, I have some bias where I'm like, you know what, hurt the, hurt the Space Wolves, they have too many characters, kill a bunch of them, because they, <laughs> they, they have, they have a lot of fodder that you can kill, and they'll still be fine, but at the same time, you know what, kill some of my army too, guess what, Gazkul's my favorite character in the entire setting, but if they created a story finally where, like, Commissar Yarrick kills him, and it's a good story, awesome. Like, I think I'll still have the model, you know, one, one of the biggest things that Games Workshop is still pretty bad about this. And I really want them to get better about it because they, they were surprisingly good about this in fantasy um, from like a backward looking perspective is just because a character dies does not mean they're gone. Right. Like, yep. yeah. Like, let's say, like, a perfect example, when they brought back Gazkul Thraka and they announced he was going to rematch against that Space Wolf guy, I thought they were going to show how, like, scary and powerful Thraka was, has become now by killing the guy who originally killed him. Because narratively, that would have been, that would have made a lot of sense. It would have been a really cool. Done. <laughs> but, yeah, and they didn't because they're like, oh, well, we just made a new model for this guy. We can't kill him. Yeah, you can. <laughs> you know, like. In fantasy, we did that all the time. There was a playable profile for Azhag the Slaughterer. He's been dead for 10 years. There was a playable pro. Well, funny enough, a lot of them were green skins. Like Grom <laughs> the Paunch, Grom the Paunch and uh, Gorbat Ironclaw were also both dead. Still playable. Um, like you could still take armies because the game, like you would just assume you were playing in a different time, you know, or, or, you know, just play the game. Who the fuck cares? Like, I've never really understood this idea of like, oh, well, you can't kill my favorite character. It's like, yeah, you can, as long yeah. as it's like a good send off for that character. And it's like important for the overall narrative. If it keeps yeah, the universe with him anyways, it's funny because yeah. I'm literally I'm like literally I, from what I can tell, the orc fan base is generally in agreement with me where we, one, our main complaint about Prophecy of the Wolf was, what is this nobody space wolf doing, quote-unquote, killing Gaskul? That's Commissar Yarrick's job, and no oh, one else should be doing it. So, but the point is that, like, I am literally sitting here, like, if you could write a good story that progressively, like, have freaking Gaskul and his wall literally invade Terra, have Commissar Yarrick lead a coalition of, like, custodies and guard and whatnot, and then have a climactic battle where Yarrick finally 
wins and my favorite character Gazgul dies. You know what? That sounds like it'd be a killer story. I'll still play the bottle on the tabletop and it'll be yeah. worth the fuck. Yes, do that. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and like that's something AOS die. still struggles with. AOS still struggles with that. Like yeah. AOS, it's a lot better about like characters lose. Like they undeniably lose good guys and bad guys. They're still pretty bad about letting characters die that were playable. Now there have been some very important characters from a narrative perspective who have died, but they were always characters who did not have a unique model. Um, on the table. I do feel like, uh, especially in age of Sigmar, when you've got characters like Nagash or like Alaray, uh, those ones who are like the literal avatars of their, uh, of their faction, essentially, yeah. I think it's a lot more understandable. Like, I think it'd be weird to to actually kill Oh, yeah, Nagash, but, like, so. you know, like, immortal characters, like, them dying is still significant. Like, Orphe and Catacros dying to Archeon was a big fucking deal because, like, it caused permanent damage to Catacros despite the fact that he's immortal. Nagash yeah. losing to Teclis, it the, the thing is, is the, those have consequences still. And I and mortal characters losing does have consequences, but Games Workshop does have a very weird obsession of when they have a mortal character, they refuse to let them die. Yeah. Um, and I, I really think they should break that habit. And like in Age of Sigmar, it's gotten a little annoying where we have a lot of battles where we will get a named character who's not like they're not like a real name character. Like they don't have a profile, but they do have a backstory and they show up between multiple books and those characters will show up for fights and always magically get away. Um, like, they'll still win or lose. But It's, it's um, funny because it feels like it is self-defeating, right? Because the, the idea on paper of something like 40K and from what you can say, like some fantasy pre-end uh, pre times idea, right, is that it's stagnant and that we're constantly on the verge. I mean, 40K especially, the whole opening crawl, right, is about how, like, the everything is on the brink. But – that that feeling gets cheapened when you have quote unquote events happen constantly that don't actually change anything. You want to make that that feeling of like war never changes essentially like happen, then have things like have an entire space marines home system fall and have like that's a big change for that going forward. And now this section is weaker, this section is weaker, but the war still ongoing. You still keep fighting. That makes it feel like a real lived in narrative place while keeping that feeling of everything is you know falling apart without ha but when things don't actually change it feel the artificiality of it becomes a lot more hard to ignore right yeah i mean I, i'll be honest that's probably the thing i'm the most excited for for warhammer the old world is we know we're go what part of the timeline we're going to and we know the vast majority of the characters they're going to introduce die in that war and I am so excited at the idea of them releasing tons of unique models for all these badass characters. And we get to see them die in these like <laughs> badass final stand narratively relevant ways because games workshop is so chicken shit about doing that. It yeah, is funny because one of the first, it is funny. One of the first things that happened when I got into Skaven was I was like, this Queek guy is really cool. I'm going to go read about him. <laughs> oh, Oh, his end is very disrespectful. Okay. <laughs> oh well, Quick totally deserved it though. Like, I'm not Quique, saying he didn't deserve it, but Quick Quick's okay. end was perfect for Quick. <laughs> yeah. 
For those who don't know, he basically gets strangled to death, then stepped on and spit on quite yeah, but very But he, he did kill, but like he does win the war for Carrick Eight Peaks. Like his his character arc had played out correctly. Yeah, <laughs> not wrong. <laughs> uh, that that scene. Oh, my God. That scene is like probably one of my like top five from the I end imagine, times. I imagine, especially if you're a fan of the dwarves, that must have been a very cathartic scene. Well, I, I love Queek. And it's a, it, like it's an amazing scene because like Queek, Queek's one of those characters that one of his defining characteristics is that Queek genuinely believes like he's invulnerable. Yeah. Um, like he, he has very infrequent moments of lucidity when he's like, maybe I shouldn't do this. <laughs> but like, generally speaking, he's like totally batshit crazy and believes himself to be like equal to God. Um, and like after he kills Belagar, it's kind of this whole bill of because like they do a really good job with even though Queek kills Belagar, it's a very hollow victory for Queek because a he gets wounded very badly by Belagar in the final strike. Um, B Queek as a character is defined by challenge. So like he's at his most exultant when he is fighting worthy opponents. So like when he kills Belagar, it's literally like the Joker kills Batman kind of situation where he's just like, oh, now what do I do? <laughs> like he's just like empty inside. So when he when he finally goes toe to toe with Thorgrim, he's finally like, yes, this is it. And like he's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna fucking destroy this guy just like I did Belagar. And then Thorgrim just beats his ass like it is such a one-way like he swings dwarf gouger which is just throughout queek's novels and the end times is this unstoppable dwarf killing weapon and thorgrim just like immediately counter swings with the axe of grimnir and instantly shatters it and queek's just like uh oh <laughs> he just yep. fucking just gets murdered and it's so good it's now, so good Conversely, from what I can tell, because Queek is probably my second favorite uh, Skaven character, although I admit I want to read more about Thankul. I've heard his appearances in the Gotrek Felix novels are great. But his trilogy is great. (laughs) But but Ikid is my favorite, and from what I can tell, the official lore doesn't describe his end, which means that there's still room to do things with him. (laughs) Yeah, to to be fair, the last time we saw Ikit, I I would be shocked if he got out of there alive. Uh, The last time we see him is that he drills a hole into Nagash's Black Pyramid. um, (laughs) And he basically sets off a bomb that causes it and all of the death magic it had been building up to go off like one of the scariest, like it makes a, it makes a nuke look like a joke. (laughs) You know what? If, if, if that is Ikit's end, that's pretty fucking on brand for Ikit, so that'd be fine. Yeah, it was, it was it was it was a good way for him to die. <laughs> there's a book, an Age of Sigmar, where there's a not Ikit claw running around. Yeah, there. Uh, I think his name's Ikrit Claw. Yeah, but yeah. It's like it's a very much game workshop. <laughs> it's like Setras, the imperishable of the storm of the stormcast. It's like yeah, there there are some vague references, but there there's we don't know what the hell happened to a number of the Skaven characters that were like relevant but kind of vanished. Like we don't know what happened to Ikaclaw in the end. We don't know what happened to Lord Skrulk in the end. Uh, we don't know what happened to Throt the Unclean. I just know that uh, apparently Thankful is the most popular, which is just from what I've read. But uh, well, Thankful is like. Thankul is not just a Skaven character. He's like one of the icons of Warhammer fantasy. I read there's this great moment where like he meets up with Gotrek and Felix and basically gives the villain monologue speech about how they foiled him at every turn. And they're like, who are you? <laughs> yeah, uh, to, to put it like very 
especially into context. That is after they have been fighting him and thwarting his plans for like 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) And and they've like seen him multiple times, (laughs) but when he finally catches them, it's after a 20 year time skip. Um, So they haven't seen him in a really long time. And they're just like, Ooh, (laughs) yeah, it is. It's an amazing scene. Cause like, yeah, it's, it's the exact, he's like got him imprisoned in a, a Skaven submarine. And he's like, going all off about how he's finally going to get his revenge. And they're like, dude, we don't, we don't even know you. <laughs> he's just like, what? <laughs> it's, it's great. Uh, though to be fair to thank he does some heinous shit in that book that like, like he, like go check and Felix memorize him as being like their most hated enemy. Uh, at the end of that book, going in the book, <laughs> I, I've, I've gotten enough into the community that I've started hearing that. And <laughs> so, Anyway, yeah. we've gone way over because we have too much fun talking with talking with you. But uh, <laughs> let's. You have any conclude? I have no concluding thoughts because again, my I'm still very new to the fantasy slash Age of Sigmar side of this. Uh, Ulrich, do you have any concluding thoughts? And then we'll get and then we'll get you, Sotek. Uh, I think my only real concluding thoughts is that Age of Sigmar has grown leaps and bounds from where it started. And while I still prefer. Warhammer Fantasy as my preferred fantasy setting. I think in almost every other way, Age of Sigmar is the superior one. And I'm curious if you, Sotek, have anything like you think, one thing you think that fantasy does better than Age of Sigmar. So go ahead, that, and then concluding thoughts. Uh, so to answer that question, I, I think fantasy does a much better job of feeling like a real world mm-hmm. where you can follow what's going on you, you can understand the history of it, you can understand the timeline of it, and you can understand the geography of it. Yeah, I will say fantasy feels you, like it's all united. I still do not feel that Age of Sigmar has a uniting theme. Like some factions, like, are you sure you belong in this universe? Because you don't really fit with everyone else. Yeah, I, I, I would agree very much with that. Um, a, 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 Age of Sigmar is much more loosey-goosey. And that in a way that's a strength, but it's, it's not a strength I particularly care for. Um, my concluding thoughts though, would be that I I think fantasy is a beloved gem that is very, there's nothing else like it in the world. I genuinely feel, um, it had 35 years in its first run of being just an incredible universe with a lot of ups and downs. But, um, the, the, the biggest thing that I would tell people to walk away with as far as AOS versus fantasy is that Age of Sigmar got to start from a pseudo clean slate and started off as absolute dumpster fire and has very progressively gotten better and better and better and better as it has evolved into its own thing. And minus the garbage fire start, I personally am very much hoping that is what Warhammer the Old World will be for fantasy is a fresh beginning that takes what we knew and love and gives it that level of polish and storytelling. But ultimately, fantasy, in my opinion, will always be untouchable in that it has a 17,000-year timeline that you can follow from beginning to end. And it has a planet with very clearly defined geography where you can follow every single book you read on a map from beginning to end. 
and you can come to understand characters because their cultures are based on our cultures. Their leaders are based on our leaders, their weapons and their history and their technology and their magic is based on us. And that is its greatest strength as the ultimate crossroad between fantasy and history. And it, that is what makes it unique and no other fantasy universe like it in the world. And Age of Sigmar, unfortunately, is just kind of another fantasy universe that is so wildly bizarre that while it's fun, it's also can be hard to get into because it's just so freaking stupid, ridiculous fantasy. I can guarantee every single person on the planet that there is something in fantasy that you will find and go, oh, my God, I love this. I could never promise you that with AOS. All right. I I love that as a I, I like I love it. I'm I'm totally on board. So it's at this point we give you the special soapbox as thank you for talking with us, where you can plug anything you want to plug. Go watch my fish people video. That's all I have to say. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So take put out a fish people video, and we also recommend you go watch it. Ulrich was talking about before we started talk recording. So. I need the ad revenue, please. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Ulrich, I think that means you can take us into the outro then. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. You know, share this with a friend, share this with an enemy, share this with somebody. Cause that is literally the uh, lifeblood of podcasts is getting those shares. And you are very likely listening to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or the Fire Alliance. FiresideAlliance.com. If you're listening to us somewhere else, that's news to us, and you should tell us so we can look into it. But if there's another place you would want to listen to us where we're not currently, tell us about that too, and we'll look into that as well. As always, this is Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Until next time, may the dice roll in your favor.